want to say a little bit more about taboo. The word in Mambila for taboo is julu. This is used as a verb to mean to observe a taboo or to fast. Ramadan, which is current, of course, is known as julu nemu, to taboo water. Julu is also used as an adjective to mean forbidden or sacred. The same word also names a species of grass. And this appears to be the same species of grass that was discussed in one of the very first ethnographic reports on the Mambilla, first published in 1931, based on a short research trip in 1929. And in Meek's report, it was clearly being used in oath-taking, in slightly different ways among the Nigerian Mambilla that Meek visited than the Cameroonian Mambilla that I, knew, that I know best, but it has a role nonetheless in all the different oath-taking rituals in all the villages for which I have data. Many things are described as Julu, ranging from its application in explaining incest prohibitions to the way that the masquerades, the women's masquerade and the women's masquerade, are reciprocally Julu to each other. The sight of the masquerade of the other sex is held to cause madness and infertility. In the male masquerade, for which I have good data, unlike for the, male, uh, for the women's masquerade, it is Julu to touch the suit if one had had sex the previous night. Indeed, work on the enclosure, which is constructed to shield the dancing and the masks from women's eyes, but work on that enclosure itself is Julu in that it makes contact with women Julu. Once the work on the enclosure is finished, all the men who have participated are treated to remove the prohibition. Ash from a pipe, um, it's from a pipe simply because that's the most convenient um, source uh, of ash. Um, where it can be from ash from a fire. Ash is applied with the right forefinger three times to the tongue, then the kidneys, and then the forehead. This enables the man so treated to resume normal contact with women. So, and this can be done in the middle of the work. So, for example, in 1987, um, the first time I saw this, the chief who had been watching the work wanted to return briefly to his palace and he then got treated in this way so that he could go back to the palace and talk to his wives. He, was then, he then came back, and when the work on the um, enclosure was completed, he was treated yet again. I've talked quite a bit about the enclosure because it's going to feature in tomorrow's lecture. There are other many... Um, lesser examples. I've heard an anxious parent say to a toddler who was playing with matches, put that down, it's Julu. More relevant, 
to Deco's life story are the taboos concerning the belongings of the chief's wives. The belongings of a chief's wife must not remain elsewhere overnight. Something borrowed from a chief's wife should be returned the same day, unless the loan has received the chief's literal physical blessing. The formal rule is that an item can only be borrowed even by the wife's siblings if the chief has blessed it by spitting on it. This lifts the taboo. Otherwise, they are at risk from schwa, which I will talk about um, later today. There's a small exception in the case of a short loan of a small item like a comb, but, and these can be borrowed without being blessed by the chief, but only if they are returned the same day. The taboo is not stringent, but its residual force is demonstrated in that miscreants are told off. And I've documented another case in which parents um, tell off one of their daughters for borrowing a comb from a chief's wife and not giving it back the same day. But otherwise, no other sanctions seem to be applied. Right, probably that's enough on Julu for the moment. And I want to move on to talking about harvest ritual, and particularly the first harvest rites for sorghum. Sorghum was the staple crop until its progressive replacement by maize through the period of the 20th century. And the critical period over which the change took place seems to be about 1930 to 1960. By the time my own research started in 1985, only token amounts of sorghum were being cultivated to make a small amount of beer for ritual purposes. Since for the st- at the start of many rituals, traditional beer, sorghum beer, is required. Um, so, for example, the um, ritual in which beer is poured on graves, which I mentioned last week, is one such. Now, the, if I can call it the common drinking beer, is made from maize. First sorghum rites are called jerry yulu. Yulu is the word for sorghum. On the tape, this comes up in conversation. Deco makes a passing mention of the term, and that prompts Sondwe to ask how Jerry Yulu should be performed. It seems clear that although he knows the phrase, he doesn't know how it is or was performed. And I think this implies that if he did see it as a youth, then he's forgotten it. Granted his age, he was born in um, 1948, the strong likelihood is that he has never seen it performed. Well, that has to be left as a maybe. Against this is the role of another player in the conversation, who is Deco's daughter, Huomdie. She talks very familiarly about the same ritual. But as the daughter who lives next door to Deco, I think it's very likely that she knows perhaps only too well her mother's litany of complaints and 
accounts of how things were done better in the past. So I think she probably knows about this ritual only from hearing her mother's account. She's of about the same age as Sondre. So now, let me try and give you her account of this ritual. She starts by complaining that the chief and his wives aren't respecting tradition. Although she's told them the rituals they should be doing, they aren't doing them. And this led her into the section I quoted in my first lecture when she said that the rituals should be written down so they know what to do, they will know what to do after she's dead. She then repeats, the chief and his wives aren't respecting tradition. Although she has told them the rituals they should be doing, such as Jerry Yuru. And that prompts Sandre to ask, how do you do it? She tells him, you bring in the first fruits and then bind them up with a stinging nettle. It's, um, I've got a Latin name if anyone's interested. It's a form of a stinging nettle whose stems are fibrous and it is used to make ropes. I'll now try and give the remainder of this section um, from the tape in the present tense and more in the way that Deco told it, although I've had to add some quite large parentheses in order to make it comprehensible to the audience. A sister's daughter of the chief, a female, um, there's a term which means um, sister son, sister daughter, um, is handed the nettle stalks one by one by one of the, the ritual chiefs. These are the men who are in control of the most important ritual surrounding the chief, and especially the biannual rites called Nguyen. Like um, the uh, Gungbe, who I mentioned last, in last week's lectures, the, the ritual chiefs have individual titles. Diko then vacillated between two different titles as to which of them actually hands the nettle doing the ritual, to the, to the girl doing the ritual. So she said, Mba, no, no, not Mba, it's Ndele. He takes the nettle and gives it to the girl. One of her co-wives, she then named one of her co-wives and the girl, go and harvest the sorghum on the place of the ritual first planting. So one ritual leads to another. So the first planted sorghum is also the first harvested. They bind the, um, the cut stalks into sheaves with the nettle. And this is the meaning of the word. To do jerry is to stook, I think the right word in English is, to stook the, the cut stalks, to bind into a, a stook. And then the next day, they go and harvest the chief's sorghum. Some of this is put aside for the beer to be poured on the graves of previous chiefs, which, of course, you'll remember, was the cause of the quarrel that I discussed last week. The first cut on the main field is done by the first wife of the chief, i.e. by Deco. Now, I think, if I followed her correctly, that what happens is this. The sister's daughter and the ritual chief 
harvest and bind into stooks the sorghum on the place of the first planting, which is itself done in a ritual fashion. The first wife, however, makes the first cut on the harvest from the field proper. She cuts and fills a basket full of grain. She thrashes it there and then into a basket. And when the basket is full, a man comes with a clapperless bell and walks in front of her as they return to the village, bringing in the harvest. The man beats a special beat on the bell. Clapperless bell, familiar to all of you who know Cameroon, and he goes, ting gun, ting gun, ting gun, ting gun. That'll impress the tape recording. Um, I note the way I'm saying it, for those of you who are interested in, in um, onomatopoeia, that the, the way you talk about the noise of a bell in Mambilla is ting gun, ting gun, not ding dong. On their way to the village, when they come to a crossroads, they stop, and he blows a whistle and invokes good things to come, bad things to go. He cries, person, animal, chicken, good animals come to the village, bad animals go to the bush, good things come to the village, bad things go to the bush, good game come to the village, bad game go to the bush. Good children come to the village. Bad children go away. They go round the village doing this at all the crossroads until they end up in the village square in front of the chief's palace. Then they go into the palace and circle the granary three times, each time invoking, repeating the same invocation. Then she takes off the basket of first fruits and puts it, the basket and its contents, upright inside the granary. Normally, and after this, granaries are filled up by people climbing um, up her ladder because the granaries are all built on, on, on stilts to uh, protect them from rats and mice. And you po normally pour the contents of a basket in. So that first basket is then buried by the subsequent threshed grain. Later in the year, when the granary empties, and to reveal that first basket again, the same sister's daughter who did the original stooking with the nettle stalks comes and takes it and makes beer from it. Um, she gives a, a vase of that beer to the chief, but keeps... Um, keeps the remainder for herself. Everyone in the village hears the bell, hears the crying, the invocation, and knows that the chief has done Jerry Yulu so they can now go and harvest their own sorghum from their own fields. Well, as I mentioned, sorghum is not cultivated in any serious way in Somi now. So I've never seen these rituals. And that kind of is always problematic hearing or receiving an account of a ritual 
often the details of such practice, um, of actual practice, can differ quite strongly from the accounts that people give. Luckily, however, I am privileged to have the field notes of my predecessor on the Nigerian side of the, um, of the border, um, Farnham Rayfish, who was in Wawa village in 1953. And he recorded some um, rituals to do with what he calls the bringing in of the first guinea corn, guinea corn being another word for sorghum. Oh, I should say that in this section, the names are all pseudonyms because um, I've edited these notes to be put on the, on the web. Um, right, so now this is a, an extract from Farnham Rafish's field notes. Clifford was talking to me quite calmly, but suddenly left when called. I got the impression that it was very important that he go. A few moments later, all of the members of the compound came in, led by Frederick, each carrying a basket of guinea corn. They did not take the regular path to the compound, but a small auxiliary path. Men came first, then women, children not in the procession. The moment seemed solemn. Frederick got up on the storehouse and was handed first baskets of guinea corn, which he poured in. He, he seemed nervous, and he told me to go and take Clifford's picture. Um, I haven't traced that picture. Um, later, other men climbed on the storehouse and helped him with the guinea corn. Later, I saw the same ceremony at other compounds. This time, the procession was led by a small girl, about 13. She was followed by men and then women. Before entering the compound, she took a hesitant step forward, then back. This was repeated three times. This, according to John, is to assure that much guinea corn comes into the compound. Samuel, who was with us at the time, left as he said that being the chief, he could not see the guinea corn being brought into compounds. And I'll come back to that. Um, there's no elderly man about directing. Two men later, and then three, clambered up onto the storehouse to help pour it in. The next day, he recorded this. Soren helped Ian bring in his guinea corn. All from the compound helped. The aim is to bring in as much as possible all at one time and in one rush. We came through the bush path. There was no special ritual or solemnity. Only Ian sprayed the interior of the granary with water, which Graham had tasted. Later, he sprayed the outside of the granary. Before bringing the guinea corn up to the granary, one stalk of guinea corn was taken out of each basket and tied in a bundle. After the first bunch in the storehouse, women were sent to fetch the rest with no ceremonial. So, what Farnham Rafish saw then was different from, but I think quite clearly related to the sort of ritual that Deco described. 
The differences are considerable, but it's variations on a theme, and those sorts of variations are just what one sees when, you, when one compares ritual from one Mambilla village to another. Again, it's part of the way that different village identities seem to be um, maintained is by these sorts of ritual variations. Let me now return to um, Deco's account. Um, recall that the conclusion of the beginning of the sorghum harvest is the performance of mortuary ritual in the sense of pouring beer on the graves of dead kin. Once the grain is available, it's made into beer, used for the ritual marking of the dead. This can be seen as merely pragmatic, simply that the beer is, the grain is now available, or as involving something more, by stressing the importance of using the first harvested grains to make the mortuary ritual, which is to invoke themes which go back to Fraser. These links between mortuary and harvest ritual, well, seemingly something out of Frasier, but they have a critical difference. There isn't the theology or the mythology that Fraser would, um, would expect, or even the systematicity that structuralists such as Luke de Hirsch would expect to find. One result of this is that change is far easier to accommodate. As the cultivation of sorghum has been replaced by maize, the harvest rites have been abandoned. Deco is one of the last living witnesses to the practices of the past. She is one of the few who appreciate what is lost, but without the analytical language, let alone writing or other means of recording her memories, and the practices they are testimony, testimony to, her memories risk being lost with her. Of course, that is now a quite traditional anthropological trope, and one that has been used since Haddon first visited the Torres Straits. And it was also, I would remind you, echoed in the quotation from Marjorie Shostak, which I used at the conclusion of the second lecture. But the conventionality of the idea does not make it less apposite. An important difference, perhaps, between Haddon or Fraser and now is that perhaps we are now more tolerant of change. We recognise change as an essential part of the human condition, just as much as traditional practice and knowledge as being embodied in languages. This is to take a relatively uncontroversial example and one in which it is somewhat easier to document change and disappearance um, in the case of languages. And, of course, my colleague Bruce Connell has done a lot of work on disappearing languages in the Mambilla area. So language change may be easier to document than in the case of change in ritual and religion. But... My situation is somewhat different because, of course, I'm working with Vico, who, by the virtue of her age, is well aware of the flow of change. And as 
We've heard when she discusses the sorghum harvest, she starts by saying that these things should be written down so that long after her death, people can consult, if not her, then the text and see what she has told them to do. So, at one level at least, in recounting this material, I am just following orders. Um, There are two further things about the harvest ritual that I wish to underline. These are not so much the Fraserian ring to it, as much as, first, the role given to the ritual chiefs. Because in contemporary Somi, these are concerned exclusively with the coronation or the installment of the chief and its biennial repetition in what's called the Nguyen ritual. On Deco's account, these ritual specialists who are okay are concerned with the chief and his health and fertility as a metaphor for the village itself which, of course, is is itself a classically Fraserian theme. But these ritual specialists played a regular annual role in harvest ritual. The second point of note is the invocation. That invocation, which I gave you just now, is identical to the one made during another ritual called Dhamma, in which the village is closed to evil. In this ritual, the adult population gathers, usually in the square outside the palace. The chief sits on his stool of office. Everyone else removes their their shoes. They sit or squat in a circle on the ground. Crudely, the men sit on one side, the women sit on another. Once everyone has assembled, the chief nominates a speaker, either one of his sister's sons or one of his senior sisters, one of the gungbe, the titled senior women. The speaker, man or woman, stands in the middle of the circle, faces east, I'm disoriented, I don't know which way east is, that way, faces east and raises their forefinger and then and, and everybody else is supposed to raise their forefinger and then gives an invocation such as I've already given you. The invocation is typically two or three minutes in length and spoken at great speed. There's no concern that the audience can follow every single word that is being said. So what I've already given you is, in effect, part of the chorus. The invocation enumerates different varieties of good and evil. And the main thrust is that good things should come here, bad things should go away. And sometimes an additional um, further set of contrasts are added, which links this ritual to schwa, which I will come on to in a bit. The the speaker says, for example, if someone comes to the village with evil intent, what will they see? And at that point, everybody dips their fingers to the ground and says they will see schwa. This is identical to the behaviour of the audience witnessing a schwa oath. 
So the form and content of the invocation of the harvest ritual is identical to that of the Dhamma ritual, which in turn evokes a link to Schwa. All this points to a conceptual integration not found in contemporary Mambilla religion. Although, as I write, I ask myself whether there ever was a moment in history in which one could not look back to the past and claim that earlier religion was neater and more tidily organised until some foreign element came in and messed it all up. Um, well, that's a theme familiar for much of West Africa. It's a situation of Fraser without writing and in the Mambilla case without myth. It's not that there's no possibility of symbolic systems without writing, but in the absence of writing, you need other things to maintain a consistent symbolic system. To find symbolic structures such as those reported from the Dewayo of Norman Cameroon by Nigel Barley, you need sets of associated tropes that are linked by organised ritual action and myth. Like some chamber, according to Richard Farden's elegant and sustained analysis, Mambilla lack myths that connect the rituals they enact. They are more truly bricolaire than anything Levi-Strauss contemplated, and this makes them hard to place within a structural analysis. They do not play the right games, although they could if they wanted to, and it must be said as various ethnic groups further north in Cameroon appear to do, following not just Bali, but also the work of Nick David, Marla Burns, the late Jean-Francois uh, Vincent, and so on. Up there, among the Montagnard popula population of the north of Cameroon, you find an elaborate series of tropes connecting burial, smelting, and other transformations, as well as equivalencies between skulls, stone, and rain. And quite simply, it seems Mambilla do not share in that cultural complex. That is something from the north, and Mambilla lie in between the north and the south. The, some of the chains of association to do with chiefship and, um, and religion to the, in, the, in the larger kingdoms further south are equally absent in Mambilla. The main Mambilla ritual nexus is revolves around Shua, which I'm coming on to soon, but and beyond it, there's a vast panoply of disconnected religious action into which Islam and Christianity have been easy to fit, as I shall discuss tomorrow. Now, there's another tape in which Deco was talking about first harvest rites, and in this she starts talking about first harvest rites for maize. This is intriguing for two reasons. First, they are still growing maize and absolutely nothing is currently done. Second, maize is regarded as a new introduced crop and, as I've already said, it's not seen as being part of the traditional religion. 
it. Beer made with maize is not good enough to be poured on graves or to start lots of other ritual. Consequently, many people have told me that it's not associated with ritual. But as she said on the tape, Deco grew up not very far away, but in a different village, in well, more or less on the Nigerian-Cameroon border. And the tradition in that village is slightly different, but that doesn't really explain the basic point. Maize was only introduced to Africa a few hundred years ago, although there's a huge controversy about exactly how many hundred years ago it is, and but irrespective of that controversy, it was late arriving in the Mambilla area. The earliest colonial report um, from 1924, 23, sorry, reports only guinea corn, as do some German travellers who passed through the area a little earlier. Um, the earliest I've got is 1912. And a later report, actually in the now archived in the Rhodes House archives here, um, from Cabri, near where Dico grew up, written in 1951, lists both maize and sorghum as in their lists of principal crops, as did Rayfish's thesis. Um, now, the problem we have is that the um, ritual that Dico describes for maize is different from that she gives for sorghum. So there's no straightforward transference of one to the other. Now let me quickly summarise this ritual. Um, maize harvest rites are done by a man with, who owns medicines. Different men own different medicines. and Well, the idiom is, you say, he's got the hands of, of, of medicine just as someone who's initiated into schwa has schwa hands, as I do. Um, he takes the first cut of maize, roasts it, hulls a few cooked grains and touches them to the fire stones, first the one facing east. And he then eats a few grains and spits this to his chest. It's, again, this is a very, very common action in lots of different rituals to libate the, um, the sternum. Um, then a senior woman will pick a large basket of maize and offer it to one of her senior male kin. That man takes it and blesses the woman. I'll skip that invocation. They then harvest the maize and weave the heads together. The larger ones, they tie the um, covering together and um, so you get it in a pair and you hang it over a pole. Um, the smaller cobs are put up in it, uh, either put in a attic of a house or in a granary and then there's more blessings then the grains are husked a chicken is killed and the senior man the man with the, um, with the medicine 
cooks it, and everyone eats together. Next day, everyone goes out and does the harvest. Well, that's perplexing. It's different, quite clearly different, from the sorghum harvest, and it's far less centralised. The ritual chiefs have no role. What we have is, I think, the following. Maize gets introduced early in the 20th century and, well, through the first 50 years, becomes of major importance. It produces better than um, sorghum. As such, as it became the staple, it would have seemed appropriate that there be a harvest right for it, as there was for sorghum. However, since there isn't or wasn't the same ritual use of sorghum, of maize as there was for sorghum, it wasn't going to be grown in the chief's communal fields. And an effect of that is to re reduce the likelihood of the chief coordinating or organising first fruit ceremonies. From the description just given, it appears that the ceremonies were not centrally coordinated, unlike the sorghum rites. And there's a weird parallel here in Rafish's field notes, which I gave you earlier, where he implied not only that the Wawa sorghum rites were not centralised, but also that the chief there couldn't witness the arrival of the sorghum in the compounds. And that neatly parallels the different political roles of the chief in the two villages. Nigerian Mambilla chiefs especially being politically weak by comparison of the Mambilla chiefs in Cameroon who have been influenced by their Tikar neighbours. This is to argue for conceptual space for innovation. What's been described for maize is a compound or family group based ritual in which a man owning medicines and a senior man bless the senior woman of the compound. The words spoken, which I skipped over, are different to those of the communal blessing text which connects the sorghum ritual to the village blessing and therefore to schwa. Um, and it's not hard to believe that those have been invented to fit a need as, made, as maize started to replace sorghum as the staple crop. Right, having mentioned the word several times, I must now give a short summary of schwa. I'll try and keep this as short as possible since I've published extensively about it elsewhere. But the following won't make sense without some introduction to the concept. Schwa for Mambilla names both masquerades, both male and female, and a series of oath-taking the most important of which is a sacrificial oath-taking in which a person pledges themselves to be telling the truth, swearing that should they be lying, may they die like the chicken that is about to be sacrificed. Re references to this oratorical trope are found in other ritual, which are ostensibly neither oath-taking nor sacrificial, and one case in point is Dhamma. I should stress that schwa is a unitary concept. The power of the masquerades, the force embodied in the masked figure, is what is invoked and what acts to, to enforce the oath-taking. So if someone lies on oath, 
they are expected to sicken and die. And that is the power of Schwa which is doing that. Um, I've already mentioned Dhamma, which kind of alludes to the power of Schwa. The other thing I need to say at this point is to contrast the role of the chief and the chief's first wife in the men's masquerade and the women's masquerade. In the men's masquerade, the chief has an important role to play, um, especially in the ritual, which marks the beginning of the dancing um, and actually in former times, wrestling. The men do a version of what um, is also called burying the village. It hides the village, I could say masks it actually, from evildoers and witches. And then the, the masquerades come out. Women's schwa, although um, the women's masquerade, although of course I should remind you that I know far less about this than I do about men's schwa, it's split into two sections, each of which is headed by one of the titled women, one of the gungbe. And from the point of view of Diko, this means that she, as first wife, does not have a major, did not have a major role to play. So whereas the men's masquerade brings the chief into the centre of the religious system, the women's masquerade does, has no similar equivalent for uh, the first wife of the chief, of which Deco was. Um, there's one other, there's another non-sacrificial overtaking which I need to examine in somewhat more detail since Deco makes repeated mention of it. There's a way in which any initiate into the male masquerade can invoke the power of schwa, for example, in response to theft, and you slap your stomach. It's called schwa stomach. I have tried this with um, undergraduates who are um, late in arriving at lectures, but it's not. Um, I'm obviously doing it wrong. Um, one states, patting on the stomach, that unless something happens, then the agent concerned will suffer. And the, the standard thing is that they will fall ill. Unlike the actual sacrifices, I should hasten to add, this is um, remi remediable. Um, so if someone falls ill, I can remove it. Um, the occasions where I witnessed it, it's been when, um, at feasts, when the organisers had been warned by divination that there might be um, witches who would poison the beer. And so this was done to threaten, to ward off any would-be poisoner. Um, but as I said, the, the paradigm case is in response to theft. So the idea is that the thief falls ill and in order to be um, cured, they'll have to return the goods and make recompense, whereupon the... Um, Interdiction could be removed. Um, but Deco says that this used to be far more commonly used and it was far more um, widely um, efficacious. For example, when um, watching over the, the, the ripening sorghum 
if there were more birds than you could um, chase off with your slingshots and just by making a noise, um, powerful people were able to do schwa stomach and that would um, get rid of the birds. Although I've said that schwa is unitary, Mambella make no explicit connection between the masquerades and the oaths. Initiation into the masquerade society is a necessary but not a sufficient condition for learning to officiate as an oath-taking. Uh, for example, there are, there are other conditions. That the, for the main oath-taking, an individual must not have either parent still alive. Um, and it's really unclear to me whether it's helpful to characterise the word schwa as being a deity. And I, most of the time, I think not. Um, it's a power, perhaps is a better word. Um, the most important type of schwa oath, and that to which the word schwa most commonly refers, is one performed at the chief's palace to conclude the hearing of a dispute. And there it takes the form of a set of addresses to the bund a bundle of leaves and a chicken and everyone is saying, I am innocent or, um, and if I am lying, then may I die like the chicken. There are other um, derivative forms which I won't go into here. Um, I want to move to some conclusions for today. Um, there are two main points that arise from the conversations I've considered today. The first is the mundane importance of schwa overtaking, particularly through slapping the stomach, since that enabled the chief to link schwa to most activities through his own oratory. Second, the connection between harvest ritual and the ritual chiefs, linking the ritual chiefs not just to the chief, but to routine, regular agricultural activities. And that's a role that is now considerably diminished. It seems that in the past, the, chiefs, the chief and the ritual chiefs had a much wider religious role than they do now, embracing much of the non-Shua ritual. So, I think it's a religious system with different dynamics to those that I've documented. If you were to remove Christianity and Islam from contemporary Mambilla religion, then I think that what would expand to take their place would not be Shua itself, but lots of other rituals. It's those that have been if you like, replaced by the world religions. So perhaps an anthropologist working in the 1920s or before would not have given the prominence to schwa which I gave it in 1990. Schwa has proved resilient in the face of the new religions of Christianity and Islam, but this might not have seemed obviously the case at the beginning of the 20th century. It is one thing to consider the... Um, changes in practice, and to follow as historians the flow and sequence of such changes. 
a given set of changes may be taken to justify our inference of the form of attitudes and salience of beliefs preceding those changes, but we need to be very cautious in the way we do this. And so finally, I want to try and summarise how things were in the religious system about the time that Deco mar married Pranaka, um, so early 1920s, before summarising how they are for contemporary Mambilla in the present day. For Deco and Konaka, the chief and the ritual chiefs, as his surrogate, stood at the centre of most religious practice. They connected schwa masks and oaths to coronation and fertility rituals for the chief and for the village as well, um, and for other well-being rituals for the, for the village, such as Dhamma. And they also had their role in the harvest rituals, as we've seen today. The only disconnected part of the system is the way in which the practice of divination could lead to healing rites, either by themselves or in con conjunction with Schwar oath-taking, in which the healing rites were seen as addressing the symptoms, the Schwar oath, the underlying cause. Nowadays, things are considerably changed. On the one hand, there are the world religions, Christianity and Islam, which are little connected, in fact, unconnected with the traditional system. The chief has his role in the coronation and fertility rituals for the, for the, for the village, as well as in initiating well-being rituals for the village, such as Dhamma. And, as we've already seen, he has his role to play in the masquerades. But, as well as his lack of religious involvement in the response to misfortune... Um, he no longer has a role in the agricultural cycle at either end. And that, combined with his disconnection from world religions, is to marginalise his position relative to how it was um, 50 years ago. The important difference here is not the bare lists themselves, which mask the more radical changes, in the, it, but rather it's the, the web of interconnections between the different uh, ritual elements, the different religious elements. The earlier network of interconnected activities and practice now scarcely warrants the word network. It's become a collection of separate or independent religious practices, just as the effects of colonial and post-colonial rule has been to lessen the power of the chief. The pattern of religious change has reduced the religious centrality of the chiefship. And at that point, we'll leave things. I'm going to talk tomorrow far more about the changing status of Christianity and Islam in the religious life of the village. But for now, we'll stop. Thank you very much.